Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back. Poole, we are here with another episode of the Delta Waterfowl Series. We have touched with the CEO of Delta Waterfowl, Dr. Scott Petrie. We talked with Joel Bryce, who's with Hunter Recruitment, and now we have a senior vice president with Delta Waterfowl with us tonight. We have John Debney on with us tonight. Now, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. And before we get too far into it, it, John, are you there? Yes, sir. You know, I noticed, <coughs> Jeremy, you changed our intro there. I did. I just gonna pile right just, into just a new, new, yeah, new story, a new intro. That's just, right. This okay. a new day. You new threw episode, me off there and, for just a minute. Yeah, I figured I'd change you up a little bit and keep you on your toes. But, but yeah, it's gonna be a good episode and. And getting back with, with our series of Delta Waterfowl and, uh, and touching on a little bit different side of it, I guess, from what we, what we have with the last two guests. And, um, and going to talk with John tonight and, and, uh, and cover, cover, I guess some, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording here about some of the, some of the topics that we had a couple questions about that he feels confident he's going to be able to answer. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a good episode. I agree. I agree. And John, I guess, you know, the, the best way to start this is, you know, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, delighted, guys. Um, John Devney, Senior Vice President of Delta. Um, I work out of our Bismarck office, U.S. office, and I've been with Delta to be 22 years, the 12th of November. Started in 98, um, didn't you? What's that? You started in 98, didn't you? Yeah, 1998. So, you know, this November be 22 years and you know, it's been an incredible, it's just been an incredible deal. You know, I grew up a kid. I grew up just outside of St. Paul uh, as a kid that got introduced to duck hunting by his dad and loved everything about duck hunting and, uh, you know, found my way to Delta in 98 and, you know, have had the incredible pleasure of meet, meeting just wonderful people all over the country like you guys and seeing places that I read about in books like Chesapeake Bay or flooded timber in Arkansas, Louisiana coastal marsh. You know, it's just for a guy that loves ducks and duck hunting, uh, you know, I suppose I'd rather be the CEO of Apple. Um, that'd be a pretty good gig. Uh, I'd probably have more time to duck hunt and I'd probably have, you know, waiters that didn't leak, but, um, you know, it's really been an incredible, incredible pleasure. And I, and the other thing, working at Delta with a lot of smart people is, you know, I learned things that I never, never would have dreamed I would have ever learned about ducks and duck hunting. And, and so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a very, 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 uh, been a great ride. Well, John, what is your, what was your role when you, when you got into Delta and kind of how to, how does that evolve to what you're doing now? And, you know, tell everybody what you are doing now. It's pretty hysterical. So when I was hired, I was the only non-biologist on senior staff. And basically I did all the work that nobody else wanted to do. Um, <laughs> I, when I showed up to Bismarck again, November 12th of 1998, uh, they had a little office for me back in the corner and, uh, there was a nine page job description. Wow. Nine and I, you pages. know, I don't think there's a human resource manager in the universe that would allow anybody to have a nine page job description. 
Um, but you know, when I started, I was doing communications and marketing. Um, you know, I, one of the first things I really wanted to do when I came to Delta, and I, and I had been a Delta member for several years before I came to work for the organization. And I wanted to get us to the place that we had a real magazine. We had a newsletter, uh, in 1998, the first couple, or yeah, first couple issues in 1999. And we did our first real self cover magazine on the fourth issue in 1999. And, and so, you know, and I worked with the media and, and did marketing work, wrote direct mail pieces. And then, you know, as the organization grew up, you know, we started our event system and I had some input sort of in the formative stages of our event system, which is hilarious because I don't know crap about event fundraising, but you know, I do just a bit more than crap from all the rest of the time. And, um, you know, been involved in major gift fundraising. And so I've, you know, I've seen the whole support side of the organization. And then here, God, I couldn't even tell you the date um, because it's been such a blur, but probably seven, eight, nine years ago, moved over from sort of the fundraising communication side to the policy side. And, you know, that's where I've been with the organization ever since. Obviously, you know, still have my fingers in lots of parts of the organization, still have a big responsibility in major gift fundraising. But, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, policy from local all the way up to federal and and also keep my ear to the ground on what's happening in Canada and work with Jim Fisher, who runs our Canadian policy work. And and so that's that's where I'm spending my time and attention here these days. When you when you say policy Kind of expand on that a little bit of, of what you're what Yeah, you're and, it's, and it's interesting because I remember I went and, you know, you guys both know Brian Leach. And uh-huh. and I remember going to one of Brian Leach's regional meetings, and you know, like it always is in South Louisiana, it rained 26 and a half inches, you know, before I got there. And then, you know, my car, you know, I rented some crummy car in Lafayette and got it stuck in some mud hole somewhere in South Louisiana. But you know, he had this great group of volunteers for his Louisiana regional meeting. And I said, how many of you guys like politics? <laughs> and, you know, there weren't a lot of hands in the air. And I said, well, this was before the 20, uh, 2012 farm bill. And I said, guys, what if I told you that one simple change to the farm bill would reduce the frequency of liberal duck seasons in Louisiana? Over the last 20 years, we would have had 70% fewer liberal duck seasons. Hmm. Well, well, that got their attention, right? And, and so when I talk about policy, it's everything from, you know, legislative action, you know, federally at the state level, even stuff down at the municipal level. And then administrative issues like the Fish and Wildlife Service making decisions on how we're going to manage harvest or Fish and Wildlife Service opening up refuges. And so it's all things that the government does that influence ducks and duck hunting. And and you, you probably, as you're sitting in the duck blind, you probably don't think of all the ways that government affects your duck hunting. But, Pool, you'll remember a number of years ago, you know, trying to address something as simple as making sure WMAs are managed well in Mississippi. And, and so it's all of those things and it has such a profound 
impact on duck populations and on duck hunting um, that it deserves deserves a lot of attention. So basically, whenever you know we're we're throwing the pitch locally of you know you can support Delta waterfowl and you're also supporting the hunter's voice in right. in you know local laws, federal laws, state, however you want to look at it. That's what you're referring to when, whenever you say you know quote unquote policy, right? Exactly. You know we want to make sure that the decisions of government are good for ducks and duck hunters. And in all too often they're not, right? Right. Um so we want to we want to make sure the things that we really care about get done. Um and then we also want to make sure the stuff that comes up that's bad for ducks and duck hunters goes away. Basically, John's role is to make sure that we have a duck hunter's voice mm-hmm. in those meetings when they're starting to right you know, exactly. right policy yep. or, or change, make changes or affect policy. So it's always nice to have someone that actually understands the issues from our side. Absolutely. And then too, if something's not working, that's a voice to, to let, let those, you know, entities know that, Hey, this isn't working in reality because of, you know, these facts we're getting from, you know, us as hunters, us as Delta waterfowl supporters, you know, that's our opportunity. Yep, absolutely. Now, I want to backtrack just a minute. When you started in 98, how much difference was the communication back then to what the communication out of Delta Waterfowl is now? I, well, it's really changed. I mean, when I started in 98, and remember who we were in 1998. Research. I mean, we, yeah, we were a really small organization. I mean, I think... The first year I was there, we had probably a $750,000 operating budget. Um, we had four staff in the U.S. office and we were, we were just starting to make the shift from being this quiet little research organization to an organization that was, you know, sort of addressing a whole host of issues and being more sort of front and center. Um, yeah. And, and I spent an incredible amount of my time in those early years, just making sure people knew who Delta Waterfall was. And, you know, it was a lot of talk with corporate partners. I remember about a month in, you guys are probably old enough to remember Herders as being a big brand in the waterfall mm-hmm. world. I and, do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I went down and met with the guy that ran their marketing. And, you know, after one meeting, you know, they agreed to put a big full page ad in their, in their catalog, which was going to reach you know, million duck hunters and, um, it, you know, and, and we contributed some sort of, sort of duck facts to that and developed a great relationship with Chuck Locke at Max Prairie Wings. And we did a promotion years ago. It was in those early stages, lots of time with the media, lots of time with people, people like that, just because so few people knew who we were that we just wanted any exposure to the logo into what we did was was a positive outcome so that was that's where i spent a great deal of my time in the early years at delta did you spend much time on forums you know <laughs> i did actually and um, a lot of people on here may I, not understand what i mean by forums but in 98 i was in college at mississippi state and the internet had just really 
you know, for us country boys, it it was a new <laughs> new technology. I know my kids listen to this; they're gonna be like, "God, you were around when the internet started." <laughs> Right. But, you know, one of the main places that us as college kids that we picked up any information on what was going on in the duck hunting community other than magazines was through the duck forums. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd get our Waterfowler.com, duckhunter.net, msducks.com, all those. And some of the greatest conversations, some of the greatest arguments, uh, you know, went online on there. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it was... It was positive and negative stuff. Well, you I know, mean, it, it, it hasn't kept ended. You. No, it hasn't. It's I just mean, it just went to a to, different format. Yeah, it's over <laughs> social media now. Yeah. But, but, yeah, and I didn't engage in a lot of that stuff. Um, but if, if, if we're letting old secrets out, I had lots of proxies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes thrown into an argument, a actual good, legitimate, true factual statement is not really appreciated. You no, know that's I mean? not what anybody wants. No, that, that no. has nothing to do with, you know, which shell you should be shooting. That's or right. Which gun or which decoy or, you know, that that was, you know, a whole lot of that. It, I don't remember a whole lot of policy being on those back then. Right. No. No, it was mainly about what's better, shadow grass or bottom advantage. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, down here in the south, to me, bottom land still rules, but that's just my opinion. Everybody has yeah, their own. I'm, I'm still a pretty good fan, I'll tell you. Yep. Well, I know we talked about it a little bit before we got started. And, and Pull and I have spoken to this a little bit, but we, we feel like we can get a little bit more of a, an educated insight, you know, with the, with the world we're living in now and the restrictions that are coming up and, you know, the, the COVID world we're living in and trying to adapt to it the best way we can. There has been talks and I don't know, you may can speak on whether if it's approved, disapproved or, or just kicking the can down the road about the Canadian border being closed and, and us not being able to to go up there and hunt the, uh, I, I, I call it the early, early season, but that's just when they start. It's early to us. How is that going to, you know, is, is that true or, you know, can you speak on, to, on that a whole lot? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, well, I mean, Canada, you know, it, and I live in North Dakota and COVID isn't the problem. It is here yeah. that it is in New York or Texas or Florida or, some of the other places, California, uh, it's sort of one of the benefits of living in flyover country, right? Is you have mm-hmm. a hell of a lot less people. <laughs> so, you know, pandemics hit places with a lot less people differently than they do when you got, you know, 60,000 souls living in a city block. But, you know, in Canada has been the same way. I mean, you know, I think the high water mark for Manitoba where our Canadian office is and directly north of us here, you know, I think that the high water mark for active cases in the province of Manitoba, you know, was a couple hundred. Wow. And, you know, and I think there are places in eastern Canada, you know, pool, I think you've been out to the Maritimes. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, I, it basically doesn't exist there because, you know, who in the hell is going to go to Newfoundland? Um, and so. Well, I was there last year. I enjoyed it. Yeah, but I mean, it ain't exactly, you know, it ain't Sturgis and it ain't the beaches in Florida, right? They're not having a jillion people come in and buy t-shirts and crap. So, so the, 
so the so Canada's fared better than we have, and and I think the sort of general census and listen, it isn't just Canada. I mean, you know, try to book a trip to Germany or England right now or Spain. I mean, nobody wants us, <laughs> and. And it's kind of like, you know, I had a guy call me and tell me that they're all a bunch of crazy liberals and they hate hunters and they hate guns. I said, no. I said, they just don't want to invite little typhoid Mary to their kid's birthday party. And that's really what it is. It doesn't have anything to do with hunting. But the Canadian public is, is you know, adopted in, in as a result, their politicians have adopted a very conservative approach. And so we've been on this rolling 30 day uh, closure order um, that's, by the way, mutually agreed to by both the U.S. and the Canadian government. And, you know, because Canadians aren't flocking in here either. And and so, you know, basically it's been going 30 days ever since the pandemic broke out. And the Canadian government just in the U S government just announced last week that, that border closure is going to be extended through the end of September, September 21st. So, you know, if you were, you know, I had a trip planned to Alberta and uh, I think on the 18th of September. So that trip's wiped off the books uh, as an American, you could hunt waterfall in Saskatchewan starting September 1st. So there goes three weeks of the non-resident waterfall season up there. And I'm, you know, at this point, it looks like almost a foregone conclusion that that closure is going to be stood up all the way through the through the course of the duck season. Well, you spoke of Newfoundland a little while ago. I talked to an outfitter that I hunted with up there last year the other day, and you know he's having he's having a lot of fun trying to book you know book hunts because nobody can get to them with locals. It's going to be a pretty much only option, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that business, both the hunting and fishing business in Canada, those outfitters run on American dollars, right? Yeah. And there aren't any. And they're, you know, a lot of those guys, depending on where they are, I mean, I've got a dear friend in Alberta, the guy I was going to go see here. You know, he does fly fishing trips in the summer and then does cast and blast and duck hunting trips in the fall. And, you know, I, he probably got a few clients coming down from Calgary and Edmonton or traveling from other places in Canada. But I bet you his business is down, you know, probably more than 90%. And that's going to be the way it is all across Canada. Well, I know there's a lot of outfitters come out of the States that go into Canada and, and guide and outfit up there, and they're not going to get that opportunity this year. Nope. Well, nope. And, it's, and it's not just Canada. I mean, right, I've heard yeah. that right now Argentina's closed. Um, yeah. You know, you really can't, you can't we travel. We can't travel right internationally mm-hmm. as Americans right now. I mean, I've, I've got an uncle that's been on a pipe laying barge for nine, eight months now, and he's saying it may be the end of the year before they, because the embassies are closed, they can't get, get back in. So it's just, yeah. it is what it is. So. And if he gets in, who knows if he could get back. So it right. may be another same amount of time, nine months to a year before he could get back sure. on the ship. So well, I guess, it's, I guess it's just at, a challenging time right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. But staying with that, from a from a migration standpoint, do you think it's going to have any effect on what we could see here in the United States, you know, as far as a, a, a positive um, of what, what we could see? 
You know, it's interesting. I, you know, we, you guys talked about chat forums and the new chat forum is wild speculation on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw a guy posted on Facebook, an outfitter. I can't remember where he was. He said, Delta and DU are predicting a record fall flight, which is pretty liberal interpretation. Um, <laughs> and said, and because, you know, there's going to be no hunters in Canada, we're going to be just a wash of young dumb ducks and geese. And that all sounds good. Um, other than the fact that I think it's total BS. Um, when you look at the Canadian harvest, and this is, this is pretty fascinating. I got into a bit of an argument with a guy from Arkansas last fall and he, you know, I showed him all this data showed that, you know, we have great production in the prairies that the South benefits disproportionately. And we have lots of young dumb ducks, um, you know, place like Arkansas, Louisiana and Mississippi, you know, are the real beneficiaries of that. And mm-hmm. he said, well, that's all well and good, except we got all this, you know, we're killing all these young ducks with spinners and pea fields in Saskatchewan. And listen, I get it. I mean, everybody knows somebody that's going up to Manitoba or Saskatchewan and Alberta and shooting a bunch of ducks. But here's the thing. There are more Americans in some years hunting in Saskatchewan than Saskatchewan residents. I believe that. And, and even in Manitoba and, and the American duck hunter, and he's, a lot of them, you know, they're good hunters or they're going with outfitters who are good at killing ducks. But they go up and they kill ducks for three or four days and they go home. Yeah. And and so if you look at the harvest, uh, if you go back and look in the mid-1970s, when Canada still had, you know, a decent number of duck hunters, you know, we've lost, uh, you know, probably close, to, well, over 70% of the duck hunters in Canada from what we had in the 1970s. And you go back into 1974, you know, both Alberta and Saskatchewan were killing more mallard ducks than Arkansas was in 1974. Hmm. Like, that's almost completely incomprehensible today. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Saskatchewan's mallard harvest last few years, about 200,000. It's a, you know, it's less than, you know, it's less than... Uh, it's certainly less than half, but maybe almost a third less than they were shooting in the 70s. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's guys, you know, listen, we've all seen the videos, right? Uh, you know, guys piling, pouring into flocks of mallards and pintail in a dry pea or barley field. And bang, bang, bang. And you talk to your buddy and, you know, man, we shot a limit in 30 minutes every day we were up there. But it's just not, not that many people. And. The corollary is, you know, and I've I've been I've been on this train for a long time too, is everybody screams and yells about Mexico. Oh my god, they're doing horrible things to pintails and redheads. Well, yeah, I, I mean I think it's pretty reprehensible that we you know, are down to one pintail in, in the United States and guys go down to Mexico and pile up thirty a day. But the reality is Louisiana's harvest in Cameron Parish on opening day, which is the parish in the southwest part of the state, great duck and goose country, yeah, will be more than all of Mexico in the entire season. Really, it's just a it's just a function of hunter days. Hmm. I wouldn't so, have, I wouldn't have thought that. Yep. So it's the same thing. So it's the same thing. I think with Canada is, 
you know, we just aren't, you know, Canada just isn't shooting what they used to shoot. And so the notion that, you know, holy cow, you know, we get rid of all that, and, you know, it's just going to be wave after wave after wave of young, dumb ducks. Well, first of all, Saskatchewan's drier than popcorn fart, and they didn't produce a lot of ducks this year anyways. Um, so I think this notion that because Americans aren't going to be there pounding on them, that it's going to translate into much better hunting in the U.S. Boy, that's a sales pitch. <laughs> well, it's a good one. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds <laughs> well, great to I, me. There's a lot of people wanting to prove you wrong on that, I can assure yeah. you. Yeah, well, I, I hope I'm wrong, too. But if we're going to have a good duck, duck season, it's going to be because we had real good water condition in the Dakotas and Manitoba and Alberta. And we had the right kind of weather, not because, you know, a hand, you know, a couple thousand guys aren't in Saskatchewan pounding them in pea fields. So pretty much we're going to have to rely on what we need every year, you know, to, exactly. see, to see an improvement. I think so. Yep. I, yeah. I don't think that, you know, and, and, you know, I had, you know, I've, but you guys aren't the first guys to ask that question. I've been asked that question a dozen times in the last two weeks. And, and, you know, I just, you know, is it going to change it? You know, or is it going to change migration? Well, listen, if you've been to Prairie Canada, those ducks aren't hunted very hard anyways. Um, not in comparison to, you know, places like North Dakota or Minnesota or Texas, Louisiana, or Arkansas, or even Mississippi. So the notion that hunting pressure is driving migration out of Canada, I think that's complete nonsense. Well, you know, over the years when people ask us, the biggest thing to me is always weather. Yeah, I know I mean, that. If, if, if it doesn't get cold, if y'all don't get snowed in and froze up, then the ducks just don't have a reason to push down. So I would say, I would say you're right in large measure pool, but I would tell you what really matters and what really, 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 really matters in terms of real, real numbers and real data is lots of young, dumb ducks. Yeah. And and you look at 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, great examples of this. We had water all over the prairies. We had great duck production. And the south pounded them. Yeah. And in Louisiana, for example, those those four years were the highest harvest in Louisiana relative in terms of their share of the Mississippi flyway harvest ever. Louisiana was shooting over 35% of the flyways ducks those four years. 35%. There are 14 states in Mississippi flyway. Mm-hmm. And they were shooting 35% of the Mississippi flyway harvest. And so I was at, I don't, you know, hell, I can't remember what the winter was like last year, but yeah, that was that was about lots and lots and lots of young dumb ducks, and I'm sure there were cold winters in there, and I'm sure there were mild winters in there, and I'm sure there were wet winters in there and dry winters. And there's no doubt weather plays a big role, especially if you're a mallard guy. But what really, really, really matters is what it looks like on the prairies and how many young dumb ducks we produce, because. You know, you guys are great duck hunters. I get it. You're the best callers. You use the best gear and stay hit the best. <laughs> but the average 
duck hunter like me? <laughs> There's no we, sarcasm yeah. in that, was it? <laughs> no, I didn't sense anything there. And you and I haven't even shared a blind together. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just average sort of run-of-the-mill half-ass duck hunters like me, we need young, dumb ducks to fill a strap. Well, I mean, talking talking about those those years there, I'm just sitting here just thinking I'd have to look on, on my spreadsheet that I have to see what, what happened. But just me thinking back, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, those those were some good years. And, you know, I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't remember exactly what the, what the weather was like. But uh, but yeah, those those were good good years for us down here in Mississippi. Yep, and then and then you know what happens is you know like weather always does it changes. And then we dried out and we had a run of you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen were drier. Yeah, um, and duck production declined, and, and guys started screaming they weren't seeing any ducks. And yeah, no kidding. Um, and this. This will this will sort of illustrate it for you. So when we have great duck production on the prairies, we have an age ratio. And what an age ratio is, the amount of juvenile ducks to adult ducks in the fall flight and in the harvest. And when conditions are okay, we expect age ratios to be about one to one, which means for every adult duck, there's a juvenile duck. When production stinks, we go below one-to-one, get down to 0.89 juveniles per adult. Well, we had years in that 2010 to 2013 run where we're talking two or more than two juveniles per adult. Wow. And and so, you know, if let's, let's take pintail. So if you have a breeding population of pintail and you have a one-to-one, let's say you're, you know, kind of just in fair to mid-length, you got four million. You start with four million breeders, and you add four million juveniles. That gives you a fall flight of eight, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's math even I can do. Even yeah. a policy guy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I can follow you there. I didn't have to use my fingers there. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens if you have an age ratio over two? Mm-hmm. So your four becomes twelve. Yeah. Right. And so the difference between it. Listen, and everybody says, "Well, I don't understand what you're telling me." Well, I got news for you. Everybody would know if their paycheck decreased by 30 or 40 percent. And, and that's exactly what happens. And the variation between great years on the prairies and poor years on the prairies can result in 30 to 40 percent less ducks in the fall flight. And we just know it's been validated by lots of good science that young dumb ducks are the ones that die. They decoy better. They get fooled easier. And in so disproportionately, hunters harvest young, dumb ducks. And so not only is there a huge numerical advantage, a huge numerical increase in the fall flight when we have good production, we're also putting the ducks in the system that are easier to fool. Hmm. I like young, dumb ducks. Very we all so. do. <laughs> and they're tender. <laughs> I eat butter pool. <laughs> I'm not picky, and we both know that. <laughs> well, well, I guess speaking speaking on the prairie, how is it looking, you know, now? Yeah, it's well. First of all, you know, we don't have the benefit of having the big survey. And, yeah, you know, 
in a normal year, you and I'd be talking about what the Fish and Wildlife Service found by doing their survey, right? Mm-hmm. It's the longest running, most rigorous, you know, wildlife survey or census done anywhere in the world. You know, that survey's run uninterrupted since 1955. And this year's the first time in history it had been conducted. And that's because of the pandemic, right? And, and, you know, you know, you're talking about moving people back and back and forth across an international border. You're talking about, you know, pilots and observers and airplanes. You're talking about ground crews. You're just talking about a lot of humanity and a lot of close contact. So it got scrapped. Hmm. And so what we have to go on this year, the only survey of waterfall that was done anywhere in North America was done in North Dakota. Uh, the North Dakota Game and Fish actually has a survey that predates the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and, and, you know, they made the decision that they were going to, their methods are different and they could, they could operationally do the survey and not get themselves into trouble. And so th- that's the only data we have this year. Um, now the good news is, um, uh, is the news from that survey was really good. Um, you know, the, the wetland index, the, you know, the feds do a pond count in order to go to game and fish does what they call a spring wetland index. Um, had over a million ponds, which is the highest total since 2014 and the sixth highest on record. So, it was crazy wet here this spring. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it is entirely transferable, but I bet you it's pretty close. South Dakota was probably as wet or wetter than North Dakota was. Um, so, you know, we had great habitat conditions in North Dakota and South Dakota. We had good habitat conditions to very good habitat conditions in Manitoba. As I told you earlier, Saskatchewan abysmal it was terribly dry especially early in alberta which is a little far west for guys in mississippi to care about although you see some guys from there was in pretty good shape but you know saskatchewan's important saskatchewan has more wetlands than any other place in the prairie pothole region and it being dry hurts us but i think i think what we saw happen and if duck numbers were up pretty significantly in North Dakota, you know, which makes sense based on how, how good our wetland conditions were. And so I think what happened pretty likely, we don't know because we don't have any data coming out of Prairie Canada is those ducks probably came into the good habitat in the Dakotas and they piled up here. And as a result, we should have pretty darn good production. So from what data we were, able to collect it it it's it's the good. news was good yeah will will that affect the flight at all it, since i did not go quite as far north to yeah it's well we i have think an earlier we know flight? about duck production this is going to be incredibly general but yeah you know i think it's it's true but it's pretty generalized is we, what we've learned over the last, you know, 25 years since we got the Conservation Reserve Program in North Dakota and our wetland resources are considerably better shape than they are in Canada. 
in in production in the U.S. prairies generally, and again, this is general, but generally is higher than it is in many places in Prairie Canada. Um, so if you had to pick a place to park a lot of ducks, you'd pick the Dakotas because production here is just better. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I think that does bode well because, you know, I, again, we, this is all crystal ball times 10, right? Because we don't have really good data, but my suspicion is those ducks disproportionately settled in the U.S. prairies where it was wet, and they probably had pretty darn good production. I mean, you know, I, I drove through eastern North Dakota uh, here Friday, last Friday, driving over to Minnesota, and the wetland conditions over there in August were as good as they would be in April and May. And and that means we have these small wetlands full of water for a lot, you know, throughout the summer. That means females re-nest like crazy and have incredibly high duckling survival. So, you know, that's really what drives these big fall flights. And, and we had that in, you know, across, you know, especially the eastern Dakotas. That's good to hear. I mean, that's, I like that. Now, yeah. what it does tell me is that maybe I decided not to plan a trip to North Dakota this year that maybe I should have. <laughs> There's still time, man. There's we still, still time. Get it, fool. Well, with everything going on between football and <laughs> cheerleading it's gonna and everything. It's going to be every, hard to squeeze in. Yeah. Uh, till and global pandemics. Here, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a little bit more, uh, more challenging because I know – you know, in changing tempo there, you know, getting flights in and out now is, is more and more challenging. I know your your flight, your job description or, or travel pattern has changed drastically in, here in the last oh, yeah, I mean, seven, I, eight months. Yeah, I, you know, my last business trip was uh, the second week of March. And I traveled for the first time here a week ago Sunday. And... And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember a time in 22 years where I went from March to August without being on an airplane. I will tell you, air travel in the COVID era is pretty wonderful. Um, the airports aren't crowded. Um, they're spacing you out on airplanes and, you know, you're not arm wrestling for bin space. And, you don't have a 300 pounder spilling over into your seat. There's lots to like about the current air travel situation. I kind of shocked you just said that on. <laughs> truth is the truth, huh, John? <laughs> now, John, with everything that you do and, and your limited travel, has it has it slowed you down on being able to to have effect on policy or, or can you speak on which policies you've had effect on here lately or that Delta's been working on that will affect? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I'd certainly like to have been back in D.C. more. But, you know, the good news is, you know, we've got a great contract lobbyist in Washington, D.C. He's the best in the business. And you know, he's been there carrying our torch when, you know, obviously I'm not there and frankly, nobody's there. Um, I mean, they're not doing meetings on Capitol Hill or, 
there just isn't much of that, you know, I guess members and their, some of their staff are on the Hill. But, you know, you talk about, you know, I think, Pool, you and I discussed it here last week. And, you know, there's been all this hoopla around the Great American Outdoors Act. And, you know, that's going to go down as probably one of the single greatest pieces of conservation legislation in history. Uh, it's certainly a generational sort of piece of legislation. And, you know, one of the things that we saw as an opportunity with that bill, you know, a year, year and a half ago when it was in its formative stages. And then as it got momentum here in February and March and April, um, that wasn't a part of the bill originally was the opportunity to, you know, invest in our refuge system. And, and, you know, and, you know, everybody, every duck hunter on the, you know, in the United States can give an example of a refuge it used to be great, used to, hold lots of ducks or used to provide great public hunting that over time has kind of gone to hell. And, and that's a result of, you know, the pumps, you know, not working, the levees being breached and all that stuff. And, you know, there's a, you know, our refuge system because of lack of congressional spending, you know, since, eh, since about 2010, um, our refuge systems in a, been in a terrible state of disrepair and and had a 1.8 billion dollar deferred maintenance backlog that's fish and wildlife service speak for screwed up pumps and levees and and you know we did a project uh, in partnership with ducks unlimited uh you know where we did an audit of you know refuges across the country knowing this thing was coming down the pike and we found $250 million worth of infrastructure projects on priority waterfall refuges across the country. Well, the Great American Outdoors Act, the president signed here just a couple of weeks ago, is going to provide $100 million a year to fix up those federal refuges. And that's a, that's big medicine. That's big medicine for ducks and it's big medicine for duck hunters. So, you know, that's been positive. Uh, earlier this spring, you know, kind of shortly after COVID sort of turned the world upside down, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced uh, 2.3 million acres of incremental public hunting on refuges. And, you know, that's something that we've been very, very engaged in. And I've personally been incredibly engaged in. And, you know, not all that's duck refuges, obviously, but a lot of it is. Um, and, you know, we're working right now to influence what the 2021 rule looks like. And we're hopeful that we can get a lot more access in places like Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, um, the Carolinas, because frankly, those parts of the world have sort of trailed some of the other parts of the country with these openings. So, you know, and I think we're on the verge of a few other big things right now that great thing about global pandemics is people quit worrying about spending money um and there isn't a there may be a conservative left in washington dc but everybody's pretty hell-bent on getting reelected, and maxing out the credit card and and we're in an election year so people are looking to score political points and you know that's pretty fertile fertile ground for a guy that or for folks that are willing to look at that as an opportunity and 
and try to harness some of that opportunity and leverage it into good outcomes for ducks and duck hunters. Well, what is your opinion? Um, Paul and I have talked about it on, on the, the act that was just, just passed this, you know, a couple of few weeks ago. How long do you think it's going to take before we, the, the, the hunter starts seeing some effects from that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, you know, I was, you know, I mentioned I was traveling last week and that was a topic of conversation is, you know, the secretary of the interior now has the hardest job in the world, right? Cause it's easy to sit back and grouse and say, well, you know, we don't have any money. Well, now that you got it and people are expecting outcomes from it, um, you know, people are going to have to be deputized to go out and get this money spent and make sure it has the impact that we want. Now, I'm pretty hopeful. I've told our lobbyists that, you know, I want to be the guy that picks the refuges. <laughs> We're going to spend that hundred million. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's a little cheeky, but I'm not totally kidding when I say that. Um, you know, I want to do everything in my level best to make sure that, you know, since we leaned in on that hard, we want to see that going to duck refuges. I don't want it to go to visitor centers and I don't want it to go to fishing piers. And I'm not saying those are bad things. I wanted to fix dikes and levees and boat launches so we can better manage habitat and make better habitat for ducks and better hunting opportunities for duck hunters. Now, will this be something that, and this is just, just a Jeremy question here, is this something that can get into the, this, this money could get into the state's hands and just sit there? No, no, this is, this is all for, legislation is very prescriptive. This is money for the Fish and Wildlife Service to fix their refuges. But, you know, in Mississippi, there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of them that need help. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you start going down the list, holy cow, um, you know, that's a pile of refuges. And, and, you know, it's easy to blame the refuge manager, but, when you don't have any money and you don't have any staff and your pumps are all busted to hell, um, there's not much he can do. Yeah. And, and we're, we're hoping to help him. That's great news. It is. Yeah. You know, we've worked over the years, John and I have, and, you know, trying to get some th- different policies affected in Mississippi, especially over in the Delta where we hunt at. Yeah. You know, try to get, you know, pumps back up, get water healed in different areas, whether it's putting, you know, the. Making sure the damn boards are in. <laughs> yeah, I, was say, I was trying to figure simple, out how to word The, the that, simple but... things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that was a big challenge. It, uh, it, and it's one that we're still battling with at times. But, uh, you know, you say that and you go back to 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, just the Mississippi Delta where we hunt at a lot, you know, there was a lot more open water. Oh man, the, the opportunities. Yes. I mean, you could, you could see the effects as a duck hunter of management. I mean, it was, it was evident. It was there. You could, you could see the, you know, how it, how it led to, you know, harvest rates and, you know, you, you could applaud the management of these, of these areas. And, you know, and it may, it, and it's probably due to lack of funding that, you know, it's dwindled over the last, you know, five years. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's there's two kinds of problems. There's you know the problem I can't remember O'Keefe. You guys are probably mm-hmm. hunting around O'Keefe. And yeah, I remember being in O'Keefe one day, riding around on a Ranger, a former Delta employee, dear friend, and we were trying to figure out if there were any ducks back in there, and we rode around the levees. You know, they just had, you know, one of those big gully washer storms that hits the Delta. And we're driving around, we're like, man, how in the, you know, there's a green tree there. Um, timber didn't look great, but there's trees and there's levee around it. We're driving around it, I'm like, God, there's a little slash water here and there, but didn't, didn't look that great. And we drove around the backside of it, and there's water pouring out of it about 4,000 you know, cubic feet per second mm-hmm. look like a trout stream. Yeah. And I'm like, so you mean to tell me somebody didn't bother to put the boards in? Now, this is the middle of December. This wasn't August. It wasn't in right. September. It wasn't in October. This is in the heart of duck season. And, you know, there's a water control structure that at least appeared to me. And, you know, nobody's going to take my advice on engineering, but you know, it looked to me to be a functioning water control structure, but the riser boards weren't in the structure. And that water was pouring out of the public hunting area and going into a bayou and probably into the Gulf of Mexico two and a half days later. Yeah. And so, you know, it's simple things like that. But, you know, so we can be critical of that sort of management or lack thereof. But then there are situations where the riser board got washed out 10 years ago. And I think that's what we're talking about on these refuges. Right. We got to get that stuff fixed up so the guy can put the boards in and can hold the water, can provide the habitat, and can provide the hunting opportunity. Sure. Well, I know at one time we even offered to put the boards in. Uh, yeah, we did. And, and, and I matter of fact, we... Jeremy and I got real close one day on uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we didn't, but uh, we we well, I, I sure thing, I sure had it in guys, my mind. The other thing we can start doing, I hope nobody in official capacity is listening, but you know, <laughs> if guys can't get around to putting the riser boards in, we can just start sprinkling beavers over the landscape, and they'll do it for us, and they work for free. And they work happy to do hours it. <laughs> All right, that is not uh, yeah, that is not sponsored by Delta Waterfowl. Uh, <laughs> that is three guys just BSing. <laughs> this is not new policy. <laughs> it is not endorsed. Oh, I can't um, tell you the the times I've sat there and looked at one and and um. You know, it, I, I think Paul was with me at one, one occasion. You know, I had my ranger sitting there, and I'm like, you know what? It would take us probably 10 minutes. And, you know, it, it was the same situation. We had, we had had, you know, a two-inch rain and, you know, should have given, should have had the opportunity to flood, you know, 40 acres pretty easily. And we go to the structure, and, and all this water is just pouring out, and, you know, I look at it. And I'm like, you know, ten minutes of of two two guys' time, we could we could have something done here. To yeah, where the boards are laying beside it. You know, you could right. you could come back in a couple of days and you could hunt some ducks in here. And I mean, that's well, just so frustrating. It, and the thing about it is, listen, there's good reason not to flood timber, right? Oh, yeah, and absolutely. We're learning more about that all the time. And you know, the good timber guys will tell you that some of these trees have had water on them for too long. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that, right? Yeah. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to kill the last great hardwood green trim timber stands by having too much water on it. But 
if it's December and the sap ain't running, yeah, and the boards are laying next to the water control structure, uh, we're fixing to have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, we're coming down to the end of time, but you know, we always try to get, you know, and I know you're a, you're a big dog guy. You want to share? A- I got a, I got a black dog. It was 90. You guys won't even believe this. It was 97 degrees in Bismarck, North Dakota today. Mm. What was the humidity? Uh, we don't talk about humidity. <laughs> um, we don't have it like y'all have it. But. I think it was 128 here, do you think? <laughs> yeah, but, but it yeah. was unpleasant for, by North Dakota standards. And I, and, and so my black dog is sprawled out laying in my lap as we're having this conversation because I wanted to bring him in and let him cool down tonight as he always does. But, you know, we were in Northern Minnesota running hunt tests, the two of us this year, uh, this past weekend. The mornings were in the fifties. It was awesome. Um, it reminded me that I'm not that very far away from smelling powder. Burn. Yeah. How many months pool has it been since we seen fifties? Mark six Christmas, yeah, March, <laughs> February, somewhere in there. Yeah. I remember. And Kirk- we didn't see them that many days. No, no. But John, man, I've uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this episode. This has probably been one of my favorites, man. I I thoroughly have enjoyed. I mean, just just being a duck hunter, this is uh this has been a good episode, man. It, I've I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad to be on, guys. If I can ever be a resource for you in the future, just let us know. Hey, yeah. look, we have we have thoroughly enjoyed doing these episodes, and any any folks that we can you know help draw to Delta Waterfowl to to help the organization, we're all for it. So. And, and we always like talking about ducks. So. Well, that, that too. And, and this is, this has been one of the episodes that, you know, if you've been on the, if you're a duck hunter and you've been on the fence about, you know, do, do I support an organization or do I not? I mean, this has been one of those episodes to me that, you know, a, a membership, you could see where it goes. You could see where it could benefit you as, as a guy that hunts ducks. So you know, what I'm hearing is we're going to get John back on again sometime. Yeah, I think so. Sounds good. Well, I believe you'd be a part. Our duck season starts, you know, I can give you your first-hand report of starting about the end of September because I have the intent, I have very ill intentions towards some blue-winged teal at the very end of September. <laughs> so you're saying we may have to catch an episode to get a, get a, get a, get the insight on, uh, yep, on, on get how the John's insight on going. how much powder I burned. There you go. I mean, by the way, our recording. digested by the Devney estate. Our recording equipment is transportable, so it's we mobile. can yeah, we can <laughs> yeah. fly up there and do one live after a hunt. Yeah, just throwing that out there. You know, I like inviting myself. <laughs> Pool. Everybody knows you've never been shy about inviting yourself. Well, if you don't throw it out, you, I don't mind getting told no. That's never been an issue. That's right. If you never, you, you know, you, you never. You, what's what's Wayne Gretzky's always say? Great saying is. You convert 0% of the goals if you never take the shot, something like that. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. Oh, well, John, look, man, again, we enjoyed it. We appreciate you being on with us. And uh, and everyone, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk. God bless. God bless. Well, ain't nothing like a southerner. Lord, to make you feel all right. I got the windows down. I got the radio on.